How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Little pigs, let me come in. Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff. And I'll puff. And I'll blow your house in. Can we start the podcast now? Yeah, yeah. Is everyone ready? Is everyone yeah. uh, locked in, loaded? Uh, Ladder's locked, empty, loaded. water's ready. I got more spaghetti. Is that a haiku again? It's all haikus, Mike. Oh, I meant to grab a cookie. Oh, well. There's no time for cookies when we're making art. That was Stanley Kubrick's credo during filming. Adam boxes. No cookie, only art. I don't know why he was very austere there. Comedy. Uh, comedy. Podcast you, starts. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. God damn it, you laughed. You ruined my take. You're done professionally. I never want to work with you again. Reference. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and a little bit of moxie. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today from the center of the Minotaur's hedge maze is Mike Napier. Hey. Dramatic as always. Up next, live from room 237, is the withered tubs- tub corpse of James Lewis. Oh, God, I was only in there for 20 minutes. Oh, the pruning. And lastly, he's always been here. He's always been a part of the podcast, MB. Red Rum. Red Rum. Red Sun. Capri Sun. It's pronounced Capri Sun. Did you not have a childhood? I want Capri Sun. I always wanted to drink Capri Sun and then turn into the Silver Surfer like that dude. Oh, God. The power. Was it always weird that it was implied that inside of the Capri Sun pouch was a living entity of pure mercury? Eh, it's kind of like Pokemon. Like, there's just an immensely powerful being trapped in a tiny kid's plaything. Slaves. Here's my thing. That was always the same effect that they used on The Secret World of Alex Mack, so I always oh, thought, yeah. why is this weird tie-in happening with Capri Sun? Well, this episode has gotten off to a wonderful start. Also, is anyone else mad that Capri Sun does not come in, like, five-gallon jugs? Yes. Okay, good. Those pouches have always been insane. Yeah, right? I hate the stupid little straws. You suck them dry in like two seconds. It's bullshit, man. I'm an adult. I want an adult drink. (laughs) Like a free sun. Like a free sun in a big pouch. A big boy pouch. A big boy pouch. 
<laughs> Capri Sun for me. If you haven't gathered, we're talking about The Shining today. <laughs> we're going to be actually doing a commentary for The Shining. We're not just talking about it. We're talking over it. So if you want to fully participate in this experience, what you can do is go find yourself a copy of The Shining on Netflix, on DVD, Blu-ray, call it back from your perfect photographic memory. I don't care what you do. And play through it as we're talking. We're going to sync up. This is like a Wizard of Oz, Dark Side of the Moon type thing. One goes with the other surprisingly well, maybe, cross your fingers. Which? And, and Cody. Yes? What's the name of this show? Box Office Pulp. What's the actual name of the sub-show we're currently recording? I knew it. I knew you <laughs> forgot the name of the commentary series we do. <laughs> you No, look. You thought this was Box Office Pulp, but twist. This is a bop in a movie. Uh, well, James thought that up. I have no attachment to it. It's a good... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It's a good name, but it's it's not personal to me. It's so horrible. James enriches this fucking podcast. I'm saying it's a good name, but because I didn't think of it, I'm not attached to it. That's just how I am. You sound like a sociopath. Well, that doesn't change day to day. (laughs) What I'm saying is you should be used to it by now, and if you're surprised, that's on you. I'm, can we just apologize to the folks at home in advance for this commentary? Because it's oh god, yes, yeah. Should we uh, also say when we originally started to record this this uh, this commentary? We've got to save something for when the movie's on, man. Because <laughs> this, I mean, it's the shining. There's fucking nothing to talk about with this movie. Not not a word. Not a single goddamn thing happens in this movie. Uh, for the folks at home who don't understand how dysfunctional we are, we were hobbled by not only that. But technical limitations, <laughs> uh, my internet just basically was alive, but totally brain dead. Uh, there was a connection, but it was so weak, we couldn't even functionally use Skype. So we've been trying to record this episode, what was that, since November? October. This was October. our Halloween commentary. You're right, it was, yeah. Uh, just for reference, it is currently January 26th, 2017, in case yeah, you're if you were wondering why Cody disappeared from the podcast for a little while, that's the reason. If you're wondering why the podcast disappeared for a while, that's the reason. We had a couple episodes. There was a Doctor Strange. We had Doctor Strange, and then when you came back for Rogue One. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that's not a couple episodes, Cody. It's two. Two's a couple. We haven't had an episode since the big-ass Pumpkin Day episode. That was a pretty good one to call it quits on. <laughs> I mean, your blood was replaced with pumpkin puree, so I do agree. Regardless, uh, we Cody had an has... out and we didn't take it. Right, and now we live in Trump's America, so I kind of wish my blood was pumpkin puree. Do you have anything to say to Frank Grillo while we're here? He seems like a nice man who probably be okay at the Punisher, but not as good as John Bernthal. Ah, yes, I agree. Back, I mean, I agree, but you still had to backhand compliment. You're just trying to make that feud happen, man. It's it's <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah, I want to see you celebrity box Frank Grillo on Fox. That's... Okay, so that's not even a competition. He would just murder me. That's You just want me dead, is what we're getting at here. Cody, any version of this situation, you die at the hands of Frank Grillo. <laughs> no, no, not if I make good friends with John Berthal. So I just gotta, you know, coast my way up John Berthal is not going to battle Frank Grillo on the behalf of Cody Alft, host of no, Box man. Office Pulp. Dude, it's just like Game of Thrones. It's gonna be a trial by combat. I'm gonna be in a dungeon somewhere. <laughs> No! And he's going to stay... Frank Grillo is not going to hold a torch and dramatically say, I will be your champion. Maybe. I think you'd do it. Can we start the fucking commentary? (laughs) 
I don't I don't like the idea of a hulked out Frank Grillo crushing the life out of John Berthold <laughs> while he's in victory formation. I don't actually care for that idea. So The Shining. The Shining. Are we all prepped? We're watching this on Netflix. I don't know how you guys are watching it at home. I don't know if this will still be on Netflix. I don't know if you are watching this so far in the future that there is no possible way to watch The Shining. Trump may have erased it. There has never been any Shining. Never. So I'll count to three. After I say three, we'll press play. Are you all ready? Are you talking to me or the folks at home? You're the stand-in for the folks at home. Uh, Let me confer. You guys sit. Yeah? Yeah, we're good. One. Two, three, boom, magic. I just want to say that now that we have our very own Twitter account, at Box Office Pulp, <laughs> uh, can, can, can we please get Cody versus Frank Gurlow tweeting, <laughs> like trending on Twitter? Like, can we, can we somehow engineer that beef using social media? Oh, yes. Get to it, poppers. Hey. Right? Yeah. Why do you want me to be murdered by Grillo Frank Grillo? Grillo has a Twitter, too, so this is possible. I know. I don't want to be murdered by Frank Grillo. But the imagine the marketing for the podcast. It doesn't do me any good if I'm not alive for it. Yeah, but all the back catalog. Come, listen to the podcast where the host was killed at the hands of Frank Grillo, star of The Purge. <laughs> this is a weird, heroic saga. Anyway. A weird, heroic saga. <laughs> Well, someone has to kill me. Frank Grillo kills me. I'm assuming someone avenges me, and that rises box office pulp to the top of the charts momentarily. We're not avenging you. Hey, look, the end of the Blade Runner. (laughs) I don't know if you guys realize this, but uh, Rachel is one of the newer models. She'll be okay. (laughs) Uh, This comedy is terrible. Anyways, fun fact about this. Stanley Kubrick. I hate all comedy. Laughing is dumb. (laughs) Comedy. Comedy. (laughs) Stanley Kubrick. Uh... Hated flying, so he did not actually do these shots. He was not on board for them. He just kind of was like, eh, I, I trust you guys. You can make it happen. And that's why there's a helicopter in the shot. <laughs> Probably. Who would have made them go back and move the sun around so there's no shadows? Or is the helicopter shadow there for a reason and trying to tell us something? No. Hey, oh, Jazz. Skatman. We've got to get that out of the way uh, as quickly as possible. One of the most amazing things that this movie has given popular culture is, I'm not even going to call it uh, like a movement, the profession of batshit crazy shining theories. <laughs> uh, if you have not, folks at home, watched the documentary Room 237, it's definitely worth your time to check it out. You don't have to buy into any of these theories because they're certainly insane to different degrees, but it's a fascinating insight into how people take movies into their own hands and how they extrapolate all sorts of details to fit whatever narrative they find convenient. Apparently, this movie is about war. War, NASA, m- fake moon landings, minotaurs, possibly all of the above. Also, female puberty, which uh, I just—I don't—I don't think Stanley Kubrick knew what a woman was. I'm sorry, he didn't. He certainly could not do a love scene. Though ghosts and puberty are closely tied together, we don't need to go into that. 
I love the idea of Stanley Kubrick walking into his own living room, finding his own wife, and saying, oh, because he doesn't know what a woman is. Well, he's not H.R. Giger. Yes, he uh. is. He's American. He's the American version. I, I don't like how Stanley Kubrick is American. Yeah, it's very weird. Like, uh, it, You just imagine Stanley Kubrick being this sinister German man, but no, he's like, is he like from Boston or something? Yeah, I think so. Grant so did angrily leave America and declared he would never return, so. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's like me and David Lynch. For years, I just assumed he was a British man. So watching Twin Peaks for the first time and he comes on screen, you're like, what is this? David I was Lynch seems very Scandinavian confused. to me. I could, I could possibly see that. He has an obsession with fish, like all Scandinavians do. So in the shot, in the shot that we just saw, by the way, uh, what's very fascinating is that, uh, Mike and James and I watched a very fascinating documentary on YouTube about the fact that that shot wasn't possible. Like structurally possible. The impossible window behind Ullman. Yes. That's that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with in this movie, is like, things just don't add up because they don't add up. I, I, I'm sorry, I just never noticed how fucking hardcore she's smoking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with her Super uh, Mario colors. I wanted this to be a surprise to you guys, but I'm actually watching this movie in reverse, in black and white, upside down. I'm going to see how it syncs up with your commentary. So... No one's smoking right now. Uh, at the end of the movie, no one is smoking. Just what I like is I have no idea if you're joking. I am not. I am. <laughs> America. America. Uh, there is one of the numerous mentions of America, a flag. But MB uh, brings up uh, the point of the impossibility of the overlook and Kubrick's overall design of it. And that like, I mean, it's it's very interesting from just a Kubrick's mind point of view and how he designed the movie. But it, it adds to something that I've always felt very strongly with The Shining, which is it is the most pure horror film ever made. Oh, definitely. And the reason for this, if you don't mind me going to horror theory for a minute, but we have plenty of time to kill because Cody <laughs> has nothing. Um, I got comments. A couple. Go ahead. Oh, look Fill at this here. Here, I said a fucking comment. Are you happy? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I'm going to mention a lot of flags. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of flags. Oh, did you see that Native American in the background? He's a ghost. Um, so, like, the 70s got horror down better than any other fucking decade. Yeah. Because for, of... For, for like, sure. Oh, yeah. Because mainly three movies. Like, the three big ones. The Shining... The Exorcist and The Omen. The Omen to a slightly lesser extent, but The Omen was more traditional compared to the other two. Holy shit, you just threw a gigantic curveball to me. I was not expecting The Omen to be the third one, that trifecta. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting, like, Halloween. Well, well, Halloween technically starred a different kind of horror film, so that's different. Yeah, yeah, same with Jaws, because Jaws started the blockbuster on top of starting, like, the creature feature. Like, or rebooting the creature feature, rather, because the creature feature had been around for a while, 
but Jaws was the first like pure version of that for modern audiences. Yeah, so different different wavelengths. Can't quite go with Halloween, but there's there's, there's different ways you can play horror. Like in in prose in prose in traditional prose horror, you have to make sure that if a monster is standing in front of a person, you have to get it across and play it as an abhorrent thing that is essentially corrupting the natural world. That's how you play on primal fears, that subconsciously everyone knows what is natural versus what is unnatural. That is harder to get across in a plain horror way in a film. It, it still happens. I look at uh, The Fly. Fly is a, a great thing, playing on the primal psychology behind everyone's fear of decay and body harm. But when you're not going for, you know, something like decay or body harm, then you get to something like The Exorcist or The Shining, which are playing on people's subconscious by fucking with their basic senses. The Exorcist, you have the sound design. Uh, of course, the director's cut has far more subliminal images versus the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut, tons of sound design. It throws you off kilter. You can... Uh, the Exorcist has the ability, especially if you're watching with a good sound system, to fuck with your equilibrium while you're sitting still. It assaults your senses, throws you completely off balance, and makes you uncomfortable for reasons you can't quite understand. The yeah, that's the reason I'm terrified of it. Yeah, uh, The Shining does the same thing because of the design of things like the Overlook or the moving furniture. It's not like people, for the moving furniture, people think there's all sorts of reasons Kubrick does the moving furniture. That they're doppelgangers, that he's doing it because that's traditional haunted house movie furniture moves. Like, no, he does it because you don't consciously catch it. Your subconscious catches something's wrong. If you notice, the points he does things like that are dramatic moments. Or moments he wants to hammer in a feeling to you, you can't get through normal dialogue of making something unsettling. So your mind is catching that the overlook is fucking impossible. That these there's too many doors in this hallway. Things are off. Things are overly mirrored to each other. That furniture is disappearing and reappearing. That it's moving slightly because your mind, like your mind, takes in the breath of an entire image when you're watching a movie. And in horror, it works so well to play on that because you make someone immediately uncomfortable and unsettled. Uh, Antichrist is another good one. Of course, that has all kinds of weird, fucked up, horrible stuff in there. But a lot of genital mutilation from what I've heard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a nightmare. Oh, yeah. But even divorced of that, before it even gets to that, you're uncomfortable <laughs> in that movie. Even besides the general <laughs> mutilation. Hey, that doesn't come in for like an hour. Hey, check out Pulp Commentary, Antichrist, for me watching that movie live. <laughs> also, before we move too far past it, Danny's shirt, USA Rocket. <laughs> hey, the rocket will come back later. Also, Actually, it would have been a different shirt. But it was USA. Too far, before we move too far past it, I love the idea of Mike explaining all that while that scene happened. <laughs> because it was like it was leading up to a crescendo of his point. Blood Vader. <laughs> but see, because there, 
I, I feel that there's like everyone says there's the three te- the two tenets of storytelling. There's drama and there's comedy. Like that's what storytelling is. But it's it's drama, comedy, and horror because each one plays to a psychological default that you can't control. You can't really control when you laugh. You can't control when you when something makes you cry, and you can't control something when something frightens you. And that I is call baloney on all three. Well, shut the fuck up, Cody. No. So, <laughs> The Shining exemplifies that because I mean I've seen it argued that The Shining's not a horror movie because people assume that if it doesn't have traditional horror things in there, it's not a horror movie. That's where psychological thriller comes in. <laughs> Anyone who uses that term, I kind of wanted to shake a little bit. It's it's people afraid to call things horror because horror is bullshit. Horror. I'm mostly mad that Silence of the Lambs won an Oscar. Everyone was like, that's not horror. It's like, no, fuck you. We have one win. Give it to us. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, I find it interesting that you uh, include horror as sort of uh, the invisible third pillar of storytelling because I've always considered horror not so much its own pillar, but in a weird way as a version of comedy. Because horror and comedy are linked together in such a fundamental way. It's always really fascinated me as I was actually having a conversation with you just a few days ago about the specific moods you have to be in to watch most horror films. Because even the best done horror film will just be a comedy to you if you're watching it in the wrong mood. Yeah. Because a scare and a laugh have the exact same structure. Uh, I forget who exactly said it, but... Uh, I've always remembered the quote that a scare is a joke where the joke is on you. Yeah, I've heard that quote before. I remember who who said it. That would explain my lack of self-esteem and love for horror movies. No, trust me, that doesn't explain your lack of self-esteem. No, then I'm also clueless. But yeah, even looking at, you know, something as horrifying as The Shining... It plays almost like you know, a very dark comedy, where the comedy is taken so dark that it's a thousand light years away from being funny. Yeah. And that's where, where you find true horror. It's like you know, Homer Simpson having a saw dropped onto his head getting out of uh, the car... After he's driven it into his garage, like that's funny. It hits his head, and he starts bleeding. Oh my god, that's even funnier. Who expected that? <laughs> it hits his head, falls off, and hits the baby. She's dead now. Oh my god. <laughs> Poor Maggie. Which direction were you supposed to go with that one? <laughs> like exactly. Like a, a scare is a joke taken to the nth level. Yeah. It's the same structure. There's a wind-up and there's a punchline. See, I've always had kind of an opposite reaction, though, where I feel like 
90% of what you're saying is completely on the money. But for me, horror and comedy exist on the same wavelength, but as a subversion of one another. Like, there's still an element of it being the same structurally, but I always feel like it's the complete polar opposite of spectrums because horror is a com- can be a complete tonal shift by its very nature. And comedy is that nature just flipped up on its, like, flipped to the degree that it just kind of reaches you at a very different point. And it does depend on the individual, but I also feel like the individual has their, like, their same spectrums of, like, okay, what is funny, what is scary? And any individual can view any film through one of those different spectrums, one of the two spectrums of, okay, is this scary, is this funny? And if they find one of those spectrums, then they're viewing, like, the opposite of one another to me. At least that's how my mind has always kind of interpreted it. I don't know if well, that's... Well, I think I think we're both right. Because the yeah. thing the thing with spectrums is I feel that every spectrum is every spectrum is a circle. It's not a straight line. So when you push comedy so hard that it reaches horror, you actually are reaching the opposite end. Also, uh, just going back to what I was saying earlier in terms of uh, horror being an escalation, the this is a weird pull, but <laughs> imagine no, loud. this has to be very straightforward. If you take The Shining and dial back the horror by about ninety percent to the point where it's just flat comedy. You have What About Bob. <laughs> you have What About Bob or The Money Pit or it, any comedy about a dad or like any kind of family man who goes to a new location and is bothered by something to the point where he gets kind of kooky. It's like, this is one of those stories, but <laughs> increased by a thousand. Speaking of the kookiness... One of the things Stephen King has never appreciated about this film is the fact that Jack Nicholson did not fit his imagination for the character. Because he already looks like he's unhinged from the start of the film. He's not a slow turn into a maniac. And I feel like that's a double-edged sword for this film. On one hand, yeah, you lose out on a normal everyman, losing his humanity and slowly becoming a monster trying to murder his family. You know, you lose that slow descent into madness. On the other hand, you have Jack Nicholson, who looks like he might murder his family with an axe. Which does yeah. sell the later half of the film, so it's like, eh, I don't know which side to fall on. Well, I, I don't know if that was entirely intentional. I think that just comes through the virtue of it being Jack Nicholson. I think with the way Kubrick filmed the movie, he was going for that. I mean, all the, all the commentaries on it basically talked about the fact that they would do scenes dozens of times, and... Kubrick would kind of delay between takes. It would take about three minutes to get the playback on the dailies, or not even dailies, just whatever they were screening at the time. And 
could take another three minutes to discuss with the cinematographer how to frame a shot or if they want to do anything different in the next take. So there would be a delay of like six minutes in between shots, and they were talking about how he's using that time to try and get the actors off balance or make them wait around and think about different things they could do. And when you're doing the takes over and over and over again, you do it like 40 times, they're going to throw a little bit of everything at you. And apparently most of the shots from this film are from the very far late takes when they're doing these things. And Jack Nicholson was mostly mugging for the camera. Like, he'd just been doing this for hours and was kind of tired of it, so he's making weird faces and doing big expressions. And those were the shots that Kubrick wanted. He was kind of gaming his performance into a larger-than-life, bigger, weirder, creepier thing. So I, I think that was his intent. He wanted Jack Nicholson to look like he was unhinged. Well, Nicholson has very interesting thoughts on his experience making this movie. Because he's always said that as an actor, he has infinitely more fun with a director who either doesn't quite know what he's doing or is such a master that whatever the hell he's trying to do is beyond your scope. Because at that point, he just has to give up and be puppeted by someone. <laughs> And lose control because, and kind of prophetically to what we kind of saw of later day Jack Nicholson, he never wanted to give a Nicholson performance. He always wanted chaos. Yeah. And that's why he fucking loved Kubrick. Because Kubrick would just have him stand on his head for 40 hours and then do a scene. Like you never know, knew what you were getting. <laughs> And also it goes a long way to explaining why he loved his role in Batman so much because so many people around that film described it as Tim Burton going well above and beyond what they understood. And they were just kind of following his lead into what would have become this neo-gothic weird mishmash of things disguised as a superhero film. And Jack Nicholson clearly gets that and runs with it. And that's, I mean, this movie is the reason he was cast in that movie. So it obviously translates to his sensibilities because you go and watch his other Tim Burton collaboration, Mars Attacks, and <laughs> it doesn't quite have the same effect. I mean, and that's that, that was chaos. That was chaos, yes. all right. It's chaos in a different way. <laughs> On the other end of chaos, Segway! <laughs> sure. It really is. Give me something, man. Come on. Chaos <laughs> reigns. The order to each shot really is fascinating to me because there's so much that's just in the center. Like, if you look at it, characters are almost always in the center. He doesn't have a lot of people on the far left or far right of the shot. Everything has got to be centered. And he's trying to draw your eye into that. I mean, it works great in an action film like Mad Max Fury Road. It's an interesting thing to do in a horror movie, especially a slow burn horror movie. Well, it's almost an act of hypnosis in a weird way. Just this feeling of, all right, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, look at the screen, bam! Hey, we definitely see that in the uh, Escalate in the second act when you know, the twins show up. Oh, and that's yeah. like, yo. Oh. Or Shelley Duvall's reaction is just, just right up in front and center, and you're trained to just always be watching the center of the screen, and all of a sudden you've just got her to having a breakdown. Is it, 
you know, her husband loses his shit. Literally anything Shelley Duvall does. The way Kubrick films the movie, I don't think is talked about enough compared to the movie itself. Because his long panning shots and push-ins... Mainly because, at this point, so many horror films have kind of aped that, but wrongly. They're always lead-ins to a jump scare of some kind, or any anything else. You know when a, when a push-in's happening, something's going to happen. That's not Kubrick's purpose of these tracking shots like we're seeing here, or or following characters around, or especially centering characters, especially since every room is a mirror to itself. Also, so you interrupt you, this up. is one of my favorite sounds in horror. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which apparently was a complete accident. They were following this around in, like, a wheelchair with rubber wheels, so it didn't make those noises, which is just a happy accident. And because the camera was so low to the ground, it was just picking up all the tire sounds perfectly, so it was just a happy accident. But it adds that amazing rhythm that kind of gets you expecting something, and here you don't get it. But later on with the twins, you'll kind of get that return. It scores itself. Definitely. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. You were actually making a point, and I had to geek out over sounds of rugs. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, the way Kubrick was filming in long shots, and the way he would follow things around, how it wasn't traditional. Oh yeah, that's right. Because uh, it's interesting. It brings you. It, it it helps create the overlook as a character, but it also gives you constant unease. Not because you're expecting a jump scare, because you really weren't expecting a jump scare at the time the movie came out. Now you expect a jump scare from push-ins or lead lead-ins or lead-arounds. Like even this shot is really bizarre when you think about it. Mm-hmm. You see that he you pull out to see that he's in a mirror for the mirror motif. It's established he's in a mirror, and then it pushes back into the mirror. It's a really strange shot that you don't see anybody else make ever. Like, Kubrick breaks access constantly in this movie. I think he does in this scene, actually. But he's throwing you off by constant camera movement or making the characters seem like... Occasionally, it doesn't seem like they're standing on the set they're standing on because of the aspect he's giving you through the camera. There's a lot of playing with perspective and almost kind of intentionally taking perspective and making it this alien thing. Exactly. Like, there's nothing in there that logically should make sense, and yet you it's not so overt to where you're like, Oh, he intentionally did that. You you almost question whether or not your mind is the one that did that rather than the film. Well, during the Zodiac commentary, we talked a lot about David Fincher's method of shooting and how dead set he is against the camera ever feeling like it's being guided by human hands. Like, especially in Zodiac, he always wanted the camera to be a force. And I think a lot of that sensibility is borrowed from Kubrick and specifically from this film because the camera never once feels like it's actually here. It just feels like you're watching some kind of portal into another world. Yeah. Like I've never seen a director hide camera work more. Oh, yeah. 
But, I mean, uh, look at this scene. This isn't, like, in a modern horror movie, this would be a camera behind them as they go around the corner, and you're supposed to expect a jump, and then one doesn't come. The camera's purpose there is you're walking along with them, and it's there to disorient you as they walk around. Yeah, and you feel like it's following them now, but at any moment the camera's just going to turn around and go down a different direction. Yeah. Because it's alive. And then Which coming is so- up, oh, oh, go ahead. I was about to say, coming up here is one of the actually only special effects in the movie. Everything else is pretty much done in camera. But this pan in here is about the only thing that was not done in camera. It had to be post-production. I'm sure Kubrick was very upset about that. Why <laughs> can't God pick up a camera? <laughs> but what's funny is, like, even though this is a special effect, this is one of the most bizarre yet effective special effects you've ever seen in a movie because, especially it's, for its time... It's flawlessly executed. I don't yeah. think anyone could do it better even today with like, CGI that, matting. Just, it just wouldn't work as well. But just conceptually, it's just why would you go for that? And then you have to think, it's like Kubrick. Yeah. He just doesn't think on our wavelength. And going back to the geography issue... <laughs> One of the most brilliant, subtle things this movie does is establish that maze over and over and over again so that whenever you get to the last sequence of the movie, the maze is nothing at all like you've been shown. Yeah. (laughs) The maze does come up quite a bit, and if we ignore the idea of minotaurs, even (laughs) Shelley Ball mentions at some point that she thinks the Overlook itself is like a giant maze. The inside is confusing and winding, the outside is confusing and winding. These characters are trapped in a maze no matter where they go. One's just an obvious extension of the other. And what is truly beautiful and horrifying about this movie is that that sensibility extends beyond the fictional world that the characters inhabit and creeps its way into the real world. Because you watch this movie and... It never quite feels like you're watching a movie that was assembled by human hands. Yeah. Like I talked about the camera feeling like a, like a force of nature. I've said many times over the years, The Shining is evil. Like this, if you told me that you, there was evidence to say that Kubrick did not film this movie, he just found it in a cave somewhere, I would believe you. Is <laughs> everything about this movie? is off just enough so that it feels like the film negative has a mind of its own. One of the little factoids about this film that always fascinated me was that the kid here had no idea he was in a horror film. He was just coached (laughs) to look confused about things, and they spliced in those shots of, you know, dead little girls or spooky stuff all over the place. So he wouldn't have to experience being in a horror film, which was oddly kind for a director who... We're not his way to torture Shelley Duvall so much that her hair started to fall out. Yeah, we need to talk about that, because it's amazing watching the interviews that were done after the filming of this movie. And Scatman Crothers weeps openly, saying that this is the most beautiful experience he's ever had, and these people are all family to him now. And to know that at the exact same time, Shelley Duvall was being treated... Like human garbage. Well, Scatman also cried on set. 
Oh, yeah, he cried many a times on set. They were having him climb the stairs, and they had to do something like 40 takes. And he was an old man at this point, so it was not easy work. Like, climb all the way up the stairs, do it again, I didn't like it. Do it again, do it again. And eventually he broke down in tears, just saying, what do you want? Uh, Garrett Brown, the guy who did all the Steadicam work in the movie, uh, he provides a commentary on the Blu-ray. And he, he was talking about this, and he's like, oh, I think he might have been exaggerating a little bit to get out of doing more takes, <laughs> which... I don't know if I believe that, but well, remember this. Well, remember the story of Eyes Wide Shut, where I think it was like he made Tom Cruise pick up a phone for a two-second shot for three days. <laughs> it's like a lot of the things Stanley Kubrick did, he did because he was a genius. I think a lot of stuff he also did because he was insane. That oh, could yeah. very well be true. Like I, I'll, I'm not even saying that facetiously. Like I, I strongly believe Kubrick had some form of OCD, and he projected that into his work. Oh, like no, not. you have you have to pick up the phone until the voices in my head click just right, <laughs> and it's not correct yet. So as long as we've got Charlie Duvall on screen. And we mentioned Garrett Brown. One of the weirdest parts of the commentary is <laughs> Garrett Brown talking about the casting of Shelley Duvall. And here's a, a snippet of what he says when she's first introduced. Why wasn't a beautiful woman cast? Why wasn't the logical wife to Jack Nicholson chosen? There's something so odd and unusual and vulnerable and almost in a way abusable by circumstance about her. When I see it now, it makes sense to me. Which is a very weird thing to say about the actress. Like, she has an abusable face, so I guess it makes sense. And oddly enough, I can kind of see the point, because it is a movie about Jack Nicholson being an abusive asshole. It's it's the weirdest way to word something that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> First of all, like, why not cast a beautiful woman for Jack Nicholson, that classic beauty? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, that was beautiful timing. Can someone make a sexy edit of this? Like some Barry White playing as we slowly pan in on Jack Nicholson? Lap dance plays. Just some lamb. I get so annoyed with that. Like, it's difficult to find any kind of, like, commentary or, like, any kind of stuff about The Shining where they don't feel the need to talk about how ugly they think Shelley Duvall is. Like, I'm sorry you had to. I'm sorry you had to look at a lady who wasn't a supermodel for five seconds. Like, I the think your brain on, can take it. The Shining was on TV once. My mom went, "Oh, Shelley Duvall." Like, she even had a bad reaction to her. I'm just, it's, it's amazing how people are ingrained to be like, she doesn't look like a person that should be on my television. Uh, Cody was not uh, exaggerating earlier. When he was talking about Shelley Duvall's hair, because there is an amazing documentary that was shot on set by Kubrick's daughter, Vivian, where she just kind of videotaped her dad being Stanley Kubrick at people. And there's a moment where Shelley Duvall is just chain smoking while waiting to film something. She runs her hand around her head and says, Oh, look, 
My hair is falling out, and pulls out a fucking clump of hair. And then Kubrick pulls the hair out of her hand and is like, good, good. It's so one you, of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Yeah, like you hear those stories and you see that shit and it's like, I don't know. It's probably a mix of things. Like one, was Kubrick just a supreme asshole? Or two, was he really trying to push her into that spot because it would translate into camera? Or was it most likely just him being an asshole who had a means to, you know, make his movie better? Or three, was that a videotaped parody of what was actually going on? Because that doesn't sound real. He faked it like the moon landing. Also, another flag. Um, <laughs> well, years later, like some Duval swore that uh, she forgave him for that because that really was the key to unlocking her performance. But when she says it, she sounds extremely uncomfortable. And it's not unlike hearing somebody who has recently been taken out of a cult talk about how they were treated. I th- like, no, the All-Father needed to deprive me of food. I needed to be closer to Yahweh. I, I, I'm sure for Duval, years later, because, I mean, Kubrick treated everyone pretty bad. Of course, he was particularly hard on Duval, but no one was particularly aware that Duval was mentally ill at the time. So that was a bad situation made unintentionally worse by actual mental illness that no one was aware was being prodded, including Duval. Oh, and she had just, I think she had just done a, like, had to move across the country and had ended a very long relationship, like, right before filming. So she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yep. And in that documentary, there's an amazing scene where, and I should say, this is prefaced by Duval saying this was every day of shooting, where they tell Duval to get ready for her scene, like get into character, like we've all got to shoot. And it's from the third act where she goes out into the snow and she gets ready, like grabs her weapon, psychs herself up, gets on her mark, starts to open up the door. Kubrick says, you know what? Forget it. Cut. We're not shooting this right now. She sits back down, you know, lights a cigarette. Kubrick turns back around. Oh, in second thought, roll camera. (laughs) She gets up, like hurries, runs to the door to open it up. Cut! Shelly, what the hell is wrong with you? What the hell is wrong with you? Did you come in here to work today? You didn't hit the mark. <laughs> These people are freezing their asses off right now. You think this is a joke, huh? Huh? Do you need special treatment? Do you need mood music? To- don't even don't even look at me right now. No, we're going home. You can all thank Shelly. And yeah, that was just every day. He thought that was funny as hell. Didn't Jack Nicholson have to go and basically tell him to knock it off at a certain point? Or is that just Scatman? Uh, no, Nicholson. Nicholson, I think, threatened Kubrick at one point. I know he had to step in for Scatman, so at least Jack Nicholson was helping people out. What I love is that's the same way filming of Popeye went. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Robin Williams put on his floppy arms, (laughs) and you're not even going to show up. So now is probably as good a time as any to bring up this idea that I've been kind of thinking about for a while. And it's 
just the, the concept of the author being the god of text. So in this case, we have a Stephen King story. Hey, another mirror. Uh, Stephen King's story, you know, The Shining came out, huge, big seller. And then we decided to make a movie of it. So the ownership of this universe transfers from Stephen King over to the movie screenwriter, in this case, Stanley Kubrick. So Kubrick is the god at that point. He can make any changes to this universe. That gets handed off to the director, in this case, also Stanley Kubrick. But he has some input, at least from other people this time, to change up some of these things, you know, from the actors, the cast, blah, blah, blah. So the idea changes from what Stephen King originally envisioned into whatever Kubrick envisioned. In this case, Kubrick wasn't extremely open on what he was going for. So by the time it hits the fans, the author is basically dead. There's no God over this picture anymore. And the viewer gets to decide what's being said. My question really is, when we look at movies, should we value the intent of the author or of the creator, the makers? Or is our own interpretation more important? I mean, at what point does do we have a, a stop there? I would say it depends on the art. Like when you're looking at something like, you know, a David Lynch piece, then that's very clearly up for interpretation. Like, that, like, what the artist had in mind is ultimately irrelevant. That's a piece of art that belongs to the public. It's, you know, it's an A. Rorschach test on celluloid. I feel that when things are more opinion-oriented and are made specifically to address a very specific issue, then reinterpretation uh, becomes a little bit perverse. Like, a prime example of that is Fahrenheit 451, which, to this day, is reinterpreted as a screed against censorship, which drove Grey Badbury insane, because if you read the book, the only censorship in it is censorship mandated by the public because they don't want books around to threaten them with ideas. It's not a, mo- a book about censorship. It's a book about society becoming so dumb they don't want any reminder that there's another way. They don't want any ideas... Uh, invading their happy, hedonistic lives. It's basically idiocracy for 1950. But people would tell Bradbury to his face, no, it's about censorship. What you say doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like, no, you're actually, you're actually just devaluing the text by making it just another anti-censorship book. The actual intention of the book is really subversive and is a little bit of a fuck you. Like, you're taking the teeth out of it. Yeah. I guess the thing that drives me to think about this is the recent controversy between John Carpenter and uh, neo-Nazis who have reinterpreted They Live as a movie basically talking about a giant Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. (laughs) I I shit you not. This is a real thing that was in the news. Uh, Members of the alt-right have claimed that the aliens in the movie are... Uh, some sort of members of a Jewish conspiracy, which it got so out of hand, John Carpenter had to go onto Twitter and make this statement. 
They live is about yuppies and unrestrained capitalism. It has nothing to do with Jews control of the world, which is slander and a lie. Which did not phase the members of the alt-right, who just it took this story and then made their own photoshops of it to basically laugh in the creator's face. <laughs> so on one hand, I want to say... You're a racist if we hate. say you are, you bastard. <laughs> right. Oh, the Apollo sweater is back. It's not a flag, <laughs> Cody. Keep going. No, actually, in the first scene, it was a flag sweater. This one's an Apollo sweater. Two different sweaters. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's that idea where it's like, well, John Carpenter would definitely know if the movie was about an evil religious conspiracy to control the world because he made the movie. But again, once the movie's out of his hands, does he control it? If the entire world interprets it that way, is that the correct interpretation? I mean, there there are certain films where the director is very quiet about his stuff, and that encourages fans to take their interpretation. It's it's kind of like every Kubrick film has a legion of people with their own thoughts and ideas of what the movie's really trying to represent. And because there's no prevailing thought, there's a little bit of merit to everyone's ideas. Oh, it's interesting, because there's a very slippery slope between interpretation and meaning. You can project meaning onto any piece of art. That's something you personally take out of it psychologically. Whether or not it was intended to be there or not. And it doesn't change the film when you take a certain meaning out of it. It just, it means something to you in whatever way. Interpretation is what the art is trying to do and what's behind it and what the cogs mean. Which I, I think that's fascinating that you say this over that scene. Just because we saw Duval walk in front of a photograph that you can just barely make out that a lot of people attach a lot of meaning to. They say, like, that's a photo of the twins. Yeah. That's being kept around through ghostly means. Or it's just a fucking prop. <laughs> but you can't really go up to somebody and say, no, that thing that adds an extra layer of meaning to this is invalid. Yeah. Because nothing says that's not the twins. And to add on to the discussion, we also have that idea between the two authors of The Shining. There's the original popular book, Stephen King, and there's the movie version. Both have had huge impacts, and both are kind of iconic in their own way. We're going to completely ignore the Stephen King miniseries version of The Shining. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be a pulp commentary one day. Ugh, hope not. We've threatened uh, that much. Don't you dare. So it's it's frustrating because I can see Stephen King's criticisms because it's not the story he made exactly. You know, they took it in a very different direction. And they weren't really trying to make his story so much. On the other hand, they probably made something more complex and interesting than what he did. And less traditional in-your-face horror. So... There's a lot of merit to what's done, but it disrespects the source material. And it's it's tough to decide if that even matters. I would say as long as the fault as the uh product that's made at the end is good, then the merits of the of it as an adaptation are you know, academic. I would rather see something 
Well, that's not even really a matter of personal preference. Like, I believe the greater good is served if you reassemble the parts of something that already exists to make something new, rather than just a direct translation, which can be fun, but ultimately serves nothing. People always talk about what Kubrick took away as far as adaption, but I find it interesting the things Kubrick inverted or chose to reference in regards to just lip service, because why is he doing that when he's throwing out so much? Like, he changes the color of vehicles around for no reason. Uh, Danny has this kind of ball in the book, and now in the movie, Jack has this kind of ball. Kubrick's using the book as a jumping-off point in a way I don't think people appreciate. I think they think he's just taking the location and the basic idea and just adding his own Kubrick stuff on top of it. But he seems to be inverting and subverting the book while changing it to something that at least he finds more cinematic than what's in prose. Well, I personally feel that any any book adaptation with ambition, I guess you could say, should try in some way to be a commentary on the source material itself. Also, I really like the shot. Everything Kubrick does has got beautiful symmetry going on. These straight, dead-on shots. But he's got Jack Nicholson, who's quickly becoming unhinged, kind of wobbling down the center line, like he's not really ever centered. He's unbalanced. Which is just wonderful cinematographic uh, uh, symbolism. And the... Also, hey, Blade Runner! <laughs> <laughs> Hello! What you were saying, Mike? I was going to bring up uh, entering the mirror thing. Jack losing his mind every time he passes a mirror. Kubrick's obsessed with mirrors in most of his films, but this is like where it all comes together for him in regards to mirror symbology. Now, if you believe certain theories, this entire sequence is about how Kubrick is against the gold standard. <laughs> I feel really pathetic because my interpretation of the Shining is really basic compared to all those awesome, crazy, wild theories. Mine's like, there's a lot of mazes because mazes trap people and confuse them, and they're all trapped with this abusive asshole they can't just leave. And in the end, he gets stuck in the center of his own personal maze. That's it. That's <laughs> I feel like if any interpretation was the most valid, it would probably be something about like that. That's, that's all I have. Like, it's pretty basic. And Mike's over here like, well, there's mirrors, so we got a lot to say. And I'm like, oh. Jesus, I did not do my homework. There are things with mirrors, but I do think, like... Oh, yeah, when me, you mention I can't argue it. They do a lot of shit with mirrors. The the cycle of abuse is probably the most... obvious and sensical interpretation of the movie. You, you can't really deny it. Like, the movie's about abuse in very, very many different ways. But the thing is, it's Kubrick... So the stuff about the uh, the genocide of the American Indians, the gold standard, uh, Americana, 
the darkness behind Americana. Like all like all the hundred things people bring up. Not like the crazy shit like the moon landing. <laughs> but the thing is, it's Kubrick had a team go out and research just the area the hotel sat on. The history of it, all these other things, all of the things people bring up and notice references to throughout the movie were on Kubrick's brain when he was designing the film. It's Kubrick. He had to, he had journals and binders full of this shit. And that's why the movie is, is so rich and so strange and there's so much going on because Kubrick was putting all of those ideas into it. The base level, yeah, it's probably just about abuse. And even more base level, it's just about this guy goes crazy, tries to kill his family, and the psychic kid gets away. Like, it's working so many different ways because all of these things are on Kubrick's brain. People get it wrong when they try to say, no, it's just about the American Indian. No, it's just about the gold standard. No, it's just about this. No, it's just about abuse, blah, blah, blah. All of those things Kubrick was putting into this movie. Yeah, Back to basic uh, statements, goddamn, this scene is amazingly well done by Nicholson. Oh, <laughs> he yeah. goes from being like a kind of charming barfly kind of personality to just like ugh, scum of the earth in about two seconds. And it's that quick flip of the dime. Yeah, that's a, one of Nicholson's best uh, performances in any movie he's done. Just this scene. I would totally agree with that. But yeah, you're... It's one of the things I truly love about this film that makes it so unique to me is you're lucky if you find a good movie with one well-done subtextual through line. Like, something was going on there other than point A to point B. This is just a fucking horn of plenty of subtext. And like I said, even without going into the crazy stuff, just the obvious stuff you can write a book about. Yeah. It's one of the reasons uh I loved it's It Follows so much. It's like one of my favorite movies of the past few years was that layering of subtext where the movie at face value is subtextual and then you can just dig and dig and dig forever if you so choose. Plus it has a very nice score. That is true. Good tag up, Cody. <laughs> I helped. But I, got I did not love it follows to the same level <laughs> you did. So I'm not gonna say anything negative except for now you forced my hand. We're going Fuck you, Cody. <laughs> Going back to the idea of what Kubrick added to the story, something that's fascinated me for a very long time is that this is the Stephen King adaptation that makes like one of its signature features impossible geography. Because... If you read a lot of uh, St Stephen King's nonfiction writing, you'll learn very quickly uh, one of his favorite books of all time, like one of his biggest influences as a horror novelist was The Haunting of Hill House. And the most famous thing about that book 
is it introduced the concept of geographical horror. The idea that the characters go into Hill House and none of the rooms make sense. Everything's at an off angle. It was uh, the whole H.P. Lovecraft idea of things looking normal but being just off enough that the mind can't quite comprehend them, but taken to architecture. And King has always been very obsessed with that, and it seeped into a lot of his work, but not The Shining. And from what I can assume is completely independent of that. This is the movie where Kubert decided to do crazy ass <laughs> <laughs> And so accidentally, Kubrick made a very Stephen King movie but more reflecting later Stephen King than 70s Stephen King. Mm-hmm. On a slightly different note, one thing that's always really fascinating about Stephen King's books is this running motive that motif that uh, places take on emotional charges. So essentially a place like a hotel that has many people coming in with different stories and a giant range of emotions that they constantly are discharging into this location would create a naturally haunted environment. Like, even if you ignore the idea that it's built on a, an Indian burial ground, it's like just, a 1408 situation. Like, there's enough people in there who are going through depression or an affair or someone near them recently died or their business trip didn't go the way they wanted. They have so much emotion that's being dispelled into the room and the surroundings are absorbing it and then manifesting it as uh, supernatural events. Which is something Stephen King sincerely believes. He would have to. With the number of times it's been in his stories and basically been the central thread. Although he also has a lot of stuff where a place can be born evil. Like uh, Christine, you know, the car was just made evil. (laughs) Just an evil fucking car. (laughs) (laughs) Sam Jackson, what are you doing in my car? (laughs) He ties the whole Stephen King universe together. He, I would be so happy if his character showed up in the Dark Tower. He's the Crimson King. He's the Crimson King. King. <laughs> I'm a little ashamed to admit I've only read the first book in the Dark Tower series, so the movie would be a lot of fun. Technically, the movie's a sequel, so... I know, yeah. I, I, I did break down and read the ending online, so I can kind of appreciate what's going on. Spiders. Also, pictured here, Jack Nicholson's reaction anytime he sees a nude woman. <laughs> we could just really rescore a lot of this movie and make it into a porno. Wow, now, now, wow. I just imagine, like, Spuds McKenzie comes out, she throws him a beer. <laughs> anytime there's a long... <laughs> anytime there's just a long shot of uh, Jack Nicholson, it's just some swanky music. What I love is that that could technically apply to that scene with Diane Keaton in that one movie he did with her. (laughs) I watched this movie in my uh, horror cinema class in college, which is surprisingly awkward when you're sitting in a room with like 15 girls and uh, there's a woman who gets out of the tub and slowly walks towards the camera buck naked. And it's not fun at all. Like fun and new... Fun nudity you can enjoy with women, but like this kind of nudity, you just shift in your seat. Everyone was very uncomfortable, which I'm sure is the intent, but it's like, oh, I'm not having fun now. Cody, I'm going to be honest. I uh, 
they know what a nude woman looks like. They're themselves. What? They don't own mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> They're not in the Overlook at all. If they did, they'd go insane. <laughs> it's kind of a weird phenomenon. Like, it, well, any time you see the male libido kind of presented in a way that you can't chuckle at, it's really uncomfortable whenever you're around other women. Cause it's just like you can't argue against it. It's like, yeah. Well, my thing is I just, I just ultimately say, trust me, I'm not hard right now. <laughs> I just stand up with my hands in the air. Check it, check it. <laughs> Pat me down. Oh, nope, you patted me down. Now I'm hard. The and that's why the this, two though, of you it... did not, that's why the two of you did not finish college. <laughs> exactly. I am uh, unemployed and very dumb. However, the payoff for this with a group of people who had never seen The Shining was fantastic. Oh. Because they're already uncomfortable and shifting around and it takes them a moment to realize what's happening. Because a lot of them were not looking directly at the screen. I like and Jack how... Nicholson's reaction is mine. <laughs> His reaction is fucking amazing. I like how it just looks like Danny made the woman ugly to per- to punish his dad for being a pervert. <laughs> they never get into uh, the extent of Danny's powers, so I, it's an interpretation you could run with. Well, there's all kinds of interpretations as far as Danny's powers go. It's and I yeah. can't disagree with all of them because they're magic bullshit powers. Yeah, I mean, the book makes it pretty explicit what he can do and what he's feeling, but it also allows for an internal monologue, whereas, you know, a movie is not afforded that privilege, so. Well, you can watch this movie assuming Jack can also shine, and you can watch this movie assuming Jack can't also shine. Right. I also love that he uses his powers pretty much one time. It's Colin Scatman, who is immediately murdered. <laughs> so calling it The Shining is kind of funny, because on a base-level reading of the movie... The Shining is incredibly unimportant. But if you want to look more into it and say, you know, The Shining is what allows Jack and Danny to both see all the horrors and the past issues of the hotel, then it makes a lot more sense. Oh, yeah. So I love I his just... red phone. <laughs> Hello, Batman. <laughs> Jazz. Also, I really want to... It's the police commissioner's <laughs> line to the scat... To the scat man. <laughs> no, 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 scat man. <laughs> Bip. Another <Bah>. mirror. <laughs> but, uh, I would love to see... This is also, sorry to interrupt, but just this mirror and the way Jack comes in, it looks like the mirror's angled towards the camera. But it's you see really Jack Nicholson weird. as soon as he opens the door on the other side of it. It's so that goes right back to that point you made before about the geography not making sense, because that mirror just fucked me up. That's a weird optical illusion. Well, and it just looks like the hall is, like, smushing in on itself, like something in Alice in Wonderland. No. <laughs> I was just going to say, I would love for someone to have the balls to do a Doctor Sleep movie <laughs> in this style <laughs> that, like, has flashback scenes to this movie. <laughs> Ah, uh, God, I would be so happy. Was Doctor Sleep oh, pretty good? Yeah. Yeah, oh, everyone, everyone kind of agrees that that's, that's probably going to be the last true King novel. Like, he pulled out one last one. Probably, before, yeah. before he went full James Patterson. But God, you know who would do that, though? Nicholas Winding Reffin. Yeah. <laughs> Reffin would do the fucking trippy Kubrick-inspired Doctor Sleep. And then Sta- Stephen King would just drop dead from a heart attack out of rage. 
I'm so confused because for years they've been threatening us with a Shining prequel, which I just don't get. Like, why? They almost greenlit that like two years ago, I think. Yeah. Cares. Like, why? Yeah, one. Why would we want a prequel? I want to see the mansion before it's on it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, Let's see an Olman movie. Like, we have an actual sequel written by Stephen King. Just fucking adapt that. It'll be exciting to people who know The Shining. And it'll be exciting to people who don't know it as well. Like, it's good for everyone. What do you want a prequel be? Grady? Oh my yeah. god, he killed his family? Yes. I, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, I think that's what they said. Grady. If it were the early 2000s, you know they would have done that. I mean, they've been trying to do that kind of shit with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for years, so why not? Trying, trying, and succeeding over and over and over again. Well, they've been doing it. It has not succeeded as a good film. We're going to get baby (laughs) Leatherface next. Just a little tiny baby with a little tiny chainsaw. It's a Tonka thing. Well, the one that's coming out next, Leatherface, or whatever the fuck they're calling it, isn't that supposed to be about Leatherface is like a 13-year-old? Yeah, it is boy Leatherface. But go younger. Go to him in the womb, cutting his way out. Ah! (laughs) It's like a new version of Aliens. Yet not one. Goddamn prequel starring Chop Top. Hey, we are getting a Chop Top sequel eventually in 30 years. No. No? No Loomis, no? No? We don't have to fill time, guys? We do, actually. I'm completely out. I'm I'm gassed. (laughs) You're gassed. There are 30 minutes left to go. I am retiring from the commentary. Um, you don't have to leave, but you can't stay here. <laughs> just gets the fuck out. Now, here's the best also, freak out in movie history. I do love this shot with the stuff coming right at the camera. Oh, man, this could have been 3D. No more wire hangers. <laughs> he just looks like he's having so much fun because that's the 800th take. <laughs> yeah, the more attention I pay to the style of each room, the more frustrating it is because it doesn't seem like there's anything to tie together. No. Anything. Like, like seven hotels slapped onto it is. one. Well, and it, yeah, I mean, the inspiration was pretty much seven different hotels and interiors just kind of mis- mixed mashed. That's one of my favorite Kubrick stories that he would just have fans. If they sent him like a letter, he would write down their information and file it away in a giant like spy system. Yep. <laughs> the crank file. The crank oh, yeah. yeah. So if he was ever investigating an area and he was like, oh, I need to find some hotels in Birmingham, he could just call up that dude and be like, hey, send me some pictures. Because he had agents like The Shadow. Yeah, I showed uh, Mike and MB the documentary Stanley Kubrick's Boxes in preparation of this, and oh yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff on that. I still need to see. They released a movie, I think couple months ago, maybe last year, about uh, Stanley Kubrick's assistant. That's supposed to be really fascinating. He's dead. It's a murder mystery. <laughs> it's a murder mystery. Oh, wait, just for the folks at home, there I do believe, if I remember correctly, there was a debate on whether or not we would do commentary for The Shining for Kubrick or Eyes Wide Shut. We're doing Eyes yes. Wide Shut one day. Oh, totally. I'm all for it. Also, I love the little detail here of just the smoke that's being pumped in, kind of give it a hazy, dreamlike feel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in the commentary, they mentioned the fact that, hey, this was oil smoke that we can't use anymore because it's basically poison in the air. It killed everyone. So just appreciate the look of this, people, because you can't get that anymore. 
Because <laughs> they're dead. <laughs> they're dead. <laughs> also. And I love that transition from the lonely hallway to this crossover. And the first time we've seen more than three people together for, what, the last hour? I don't like the idea of Kubrick having access to all these extras. <laughs> but I'm so glad you brought up Eyes Wide Shut, Mike. Because I feel like that perfectly encapsulates what I was saying at the beginning of the commentary about the fine line between horror and comedy. Because what's always fascinated me about Eyes Wide Shut is if you tweak every scene in that movie just a little bit, it's the funniest movie ever made. I would argue Eyes Wide Shut is already the funniest movie ever made. Unintentionally, though, you could make a fucking Will Ferrell comedy out of just one or two lines being moved around in each scene. Because that movie is trying to be disturbing as hell, but all you get are jokes that aren't trying to be funny. Uh, quick aside, going back to that idea of things changing around position and being different, all of a sudden, Jack Nicholson has money in his wallet. Last time he was at the bar, he was empty. He got his one paycheck in the mail. <laughs> I also love Jack's performance in this because he's just assuming this is all in his head, and he's oh. acting like it. It's kind of uh, someone dressed as a Native American just walked by in the background. Oh, oh wait till the bear oh. shows up. Oh, the bear. I'm sorry, are you counting that as an America thing? Because really, they they there was a lot count more. more than anything else. Yeah, I, I would count that. But there's been a whole bunch of other stuff, like the murals on the uh, uh, just outside the main office and all that kind of stuff. You stopped counting a long time ago. I did. Yep. I really did. I did. You had one job, Cody. Yep. Eh, I'm fired. You fire yourself from Bob's I'm gone. My ejector seat goes off, and I fly to a different movie. <laughs> Damn it, Cody. You were going to finish this commentary. Stop trying to get yourself fired. <laughs> Go back to Scream. <laughs> but um, something that I've been kind of, uh, which is weird for a commentary to say, that I've been kind of jesting on, kind of thinking about and mulling over, is going back to a way, way, way earlier conversation that we were having where... We talked about the idea of adaptation, the idea of interpretation, what where the line is between personal interpretation. And I didn't really speak up because I had to think about it for a while. Because you're not allowed to have opinions, MB. Exactly. But um, my whole thing that I think I've always kind of thought in the back of my head and never really thought about to any detailed degree is that I think interpretation is fine if you have a self-awareness. I think self-awareness is actually a very vital in part, uh, a very vital part of taking in any sort of artwork because art is something that I don't feel you can ever really be definite on because somewhere along the way, someone may come up with an idea that is even better than the one you came up with. And I think that if you're not self-aware, you close yourself off to the idea that, no, no, that, that this was always what it was meant to be. This was always what it was. I'm never going to move away from that. And it doesn't matter if the creator of the thing made it and says something differently. I'm just going to stick with my original interpretation. 
when you're self-aware, you allow more viewpoints to come in and actually reshape what you view with art. And I feel like a movie like this, honestly, is something to where you can't go away from this with one viewing and say that you have this movie figured out. It's impossible. Especially with something with so much insane subtext, like The Shining, or something with so much rich film history. Because, honestly, if you don't really go ahead and accept other interpretations and kind of allow them to reshape what you once thought was canon, then, one, you're being kind of a closed-minded dick, and two, you're kind of limiting the point of what the experience of taking in art is, which is to have it evolve along with you as you grow older, as you grow wiser, you take in art, and you change your mind sometimes on it. Yeah. Which That's how is, art stays alive. Yeah. yeah. So I think, like, interpretation is fun. Like, the, the way Mike put it earlier, I think, was interpretation is a vastly different thing from just... I, I forget. Pulling exact, meaning out of something. Yeah, meaning. Pulling meaning. Interpretation is a thing to where if you approach it with more of a self-awareness of a, of a self, more of an openness, I would say, where you, you come up with an opinion, but it's more of a thing that's malleable. It's a thing to where it can be shaped later on and changed if you keep a more open mind. And with The Shining, I think that's one of the best examples of something to where you can have an entirely different opinion of it years after you see it. And you can see something that can absolutely change your mind. And definitely nothing in uh, the Room 237 documentary. <laughs> because those people are crazy, and that's just that's just not a thing you can take in. But No, no, like, there are hidden boners all throughout this movie, MB. <laughs> but I think the idea of being malleable is so lost in the lexicon of what people, especially film snobs and people who just want to say what they want to say about a movie and just have that be what it is for all time. Like we, we knew a person who once claimed that like there was a Tim Burton movie that was all about eighties industrialism. And that, no, that, Tim Burton's never made a movie about that. It was Big Fish. That was the weird thing. <laughs> yeah, that was the weird thing. But I can maybe see if it was not Big Fish. Interesting. But uh, it was actually uh, Sweeney Todd. Which makes but, uh, even less sense. Yeah. But I think the idea of being more open, it's just, it's always been a personal nitpick of mine because the idea that a movie has to be this thing that you've come up with and just laid down the law of the idea of your interpretation of something matters more than anyone else's, including the creators. And I get the idea of disagreeing with the creator because some creators aren't like legitimately insane and believe that their movies are something that they weren't when they were making them. But I think with something like this, it's like, yeah, you can definitely look at this and come up with an opinion, you can't come up with the opinion. 
you have to really look at this and really be open to the possibility that somewhere down the line, someone will come up with a Eureka that you never even would have come across. So do you think Target did this to their bathrooms first or The Shining? (laughs) Target. Aren't you the host of this podcast? I am. I don't have anything good to say. That was my interpretation. MB had like a great point about a lot of shit. It's like, uh, I don't, I can't really argue any of that. Moving on. I mean, you don't have to argue it. Yeah, I'm not Mike. I'm not your enemy. (laughs) True. Also, I just realized this scene has been going on much longer than I remember. Oh, yeah. Oh, this this scene is epic. I didn't realize I spent 20 minutes in the goddamn bathroom. This scene has gone on the length of my rant. Uh, as good as a time as any to uh, talk about the ending of this movie, since a lot of the meaning attached to the ending is established in that scene. The, the final shot of Torrance uh, being among the ghosts in the photograph, which is received a lot of examination, a lot of theorizing over the years, especially with Grady's uh, line about Torrance having always been there. And I'm curious uh, what you guys make of that. For me, it almost plays into the, the themes of abuse and the cycle of abuse. They don't really talk about it, but it's clear there's a bit of a cycle of abuse going on between something happened to Jack, Jack is now doing this to Danny, blah, blah, blah. And the ho- and it's being played that way on the basis of the hotel. The hotel, whatever's going on with it, is parasitic in some way. It's playing the tragedies of what it was, its violence over and over again. When you show up, you get pulled into it. That's why I think Jack not being a good man who got pulled into insanity is so important with this movie. The hotel's just praying and pulling apart things that were already there with Jack. And he was always going to be there. Exactly. There's an inevitability. That's where a lot of the horror of this movie comes for. It's an inevitability. And what does Danny do to get away from that? He's in a literal maze. He retraces his steps and goes completely off the preordained path. And that's how he gets away. He essentially breaks the cycle. And that closes the essential loop that's going on with the hotel. Jack was always there because that was the always the inevitability. He's always part of that cycle. And it's interesting if you consider uh, the suggestion that uh, in addition to not making any kind of spatial sense, the Overlook also in its own way exists kind of outside of time especially as far as the ghosts are concerned, where while everyone's, you know, while everyone's bodies may have been out in the real world, 
their souls were always in the Overlook. Especially, not to make a very uh, a cliched analogy, but it's like the old uh, the old Christian thing of your heart belonging in hell while the rest of you is on earth. Yeah. It's like in that way, yeah, Jack was always the caretaker because he was always going to be that. He always belonged to the Overlook before he ever stepped foot into it. Hmm. Exactly. And that time displacement thing runs through a lot of King's works. Not even the ones that he directly wrote, but the ones that were adapted from his material, like 1408, the ghosts are trapped repeating the same things over and over again. Once you die and become a ghost in that room, you essentially become timeless as well and disoriented and part of that loop. I would say the same applies to the ghosts of The Shining. You know, once you're one of them, you're always them. So from Grady's point of view, yeah, he's always been the caretaker. He's always been there because he's trapped in the hotel forever. Backwards and forward in time. So I just want to point out, Stanley Kubrick made somebody type all of that. <laughs> no, here, here was, here's my thing. Do you think Kubrick just did it himself? No, Not when I he could that. torture someone else. <laughs> he watched say, them do it, though. I remember he, uh, <clears throat> there was a mention of it on one of the making of featurettes that he had, like, some poor assistant type this whole goddamn thing out. And it's just and, like, a multiple book, languages, right? too. Like, you know, for other languages uh, of the Shining, you know, if it was released in, like, Japan, they had to have someone put it all in Japanese, yeah. if I remember right. Uh, that just makes it more horrifying. Jack was writing all that in Japanese. <laughs> he made Shelley Duvall do it all. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's always kind of baffled me, uh, Stephen King's thoughts on this movie. Just because he went so far in raging towards it in you know, the second half of his career, but whenever this movie came out, Stephen King fucking loved it and thought it was the greatest horror film ever made. Like in, a, in his non-fiction book, Dance Macabre, which came out in, uh, I believe, 1980, like he just sucked it off for page after page after page. What a genius Kubrick was, how Jack Nicholson was giving the performance of his career. They took his humble book and made art out of it. He was on a lot of cocaine at the time. <laughs> also, he had received a large check. <laughs> There's that, too. I just, I just wonder, like, is that an ego thing? Like, is that because he hadn't become Stephen King yet, so he still thought people could improve on his work? Or is that just something that soured with time? I've always wondered if it has anything to do with the fact that he... He didn't understand there was personal meaning in The Shining until years later. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite uh, moments in uh, his autobiography on writing is when he says that he celebrated receiving his advance on The Shining by going out to a bar and getting shit-faced. And it took him 30 years to realize that was fucked up. Yeah. So, I... I don't know, I maybe believe, because the one thing he was really bothered by was the chains of Jack char Jack's character. So uh, part of me thinks that maybe when he realized what The Shining actually meant, what he was 
putting down the page subconsciously wasn't included in this film that's hurt him personally in some way. Well, Which is weird because he himself didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting when you look at the way King has always portrayed substance abuse in his books as metaphorically this monster from another world that grabs up innocent people and turns them into things they'd never be regardless. The idea of that just not being an invading force, that just being something that was always inside you, I imagine, is kind of disturbing to him. Yeah. Not you know, not to do arm sit, armchair psychology there. You could on King, though. Yeah, like, in a weird self-fulfilling prophecy, like, versions of this kind of happened to Stephen King later. Well, long like he, he, he had his wife leave him and hurry his kids away in the night. I mean, it's been the long-running commentary that Stephen King basically just writes himself as each character of his story. You know, it's always a harried artist or some sort of creator. Or a maniacal clown. I like to Not think main he character. Was... He's terrorized by clowns his whole life, probably. No, no, I like to think that that was the one instance in when King was writing himself as Pennywise. Oh, it's, a, it's all just a metaphor for being a horror writer? Yes. Well, you know, I am everything you're afraid of. <laughs> beep, beep. That or being a metaphor for secretly being a giant spider, because <laughs> I, I don't think we've ruled that out. So, out of curiosity, did you guys first watch The Shining as this version of The Shining, or did you see the Simpsons episode that Perry did? Simpsons episode. Same here. Yeah, that was my introduction to The Shining, watching The Shining. I've, I've never seen the uh, Shining episode of The Simpsons. I've, Mike and James have actually been slowly introducing me to The Simpsons for the most part, because I didn't grow up with it. And this, I, I, I can safely say I saw the film first, and the first time I saw the film was earlier today. Oh. All the way through. Because I had seen... <laughs> Because I, I stomached it, guys. <laughs> I toughed it out for you. Because I had seen a little bit of it, like, a couple of years ago, but honestly, the pa- I was very, I was about, like, 19, maybe, and the pacing of it got to me to where it's like, I don't really, I don't, I don't think I'm in the right moods for this, because it's just doing nothing for me. So about 20 minutes in, I just kind of leisurely went to other things and never really picked up on it. And watching it today was an interesting experience because a lot of things just kind of suddenly clicked into place and a lot of things just kind of opened themselves up to me because I finally found myself in the mood to watch it. So to actually go back and watch that Simpsons episode now would be kind of fascinating because if I had watched it before, it, like without that context, of beyond just being like, this was a movie I gave up on after 20 minutes once when I was 19, <laughs> I would have been weird. Well, if you see the Simpsons episode first, and this is the funniest movie in the world. <laughs> it really does color your interpretation of the film. It, it's kind of like if you watched uh, Young Frankenstein and then saw Bride of Frankenstein, you're always going to kind of confuse the scenes with the hermit and the smoking. 
Oh yeah. Oh, I already it was knew. it was oh it was amazing on Halloween. We were hanging out uh with Bride of Frankenstein on and I was just laughing my ass off because I'd forgotten that it's just the exact same scene. <laughs> it's so damn close. Fire good, smoke good. Cigars. Like I forgot <laughs> that they actually smoke cigars in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, when I, I think of this, and I can't help but think, think of The Simpsons, just the ending. Urge to kill, rising. Or, God, try watching Citizen Kane. Oh. <laughs> the movie The Simpsons strip mind for, like, ten years. <laughs> well, that begs the question, though, now that I've seen The Shining first, is that episode of The Simpsons going to be horrifying for me? Yes. Okay. It already is by itself. There is the graphic kind order of, of scary episode. Yeah, it was part of, back in the day when I really just was my favorite thing of the year, just waiting for the Treehouse of Horror episode to come around. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, like, they, they don't really do horror episodes so much. They just, do movie parodies. Yeah, it's their chance to do just kind of a parody or bad movie feel like. parodies. I know, I know we're getting a little off track here, but I, I do find this fascinating. When you were a kid, did you appreciate the Treehouses of Horror mostly because that was the only place you could see adult animation like that, like with a horror slant, a horror and, fa- and fantasy and sci-fi slant. As a, as a kid, personally, I was just always fascinated by anything related to horror. Even if I couldn't see it, I would try and find out as much as possible. You know, it, it was like you'd go to the video store and they'd have a poster up for Anaconda, and you'd just be fascinated, like, what is this? <laughs> I want to know Who is more. this J-Lo? <laughs> Snakes! Snakes! It's a big fucking snake. It is, yeah. So as like a kid, I was always fascinated by that stuff, and anyway, consume it, I would go after it. Which, you're pretty limited as a kid, because, you know, they don't show a lot of that stuff on TV, at least back in the early 90s, they didn't. Um, Getting your hands on VHS tapes, also not super easy as a kid. You know, you had to have like a friend who had one checked out for a party, or, you know, borrowed it from their parents. So it was always just fascinating to me. Like, if The Simpsons did that stuff, I was allowed to watch that and I could get my hands on it. So I was just always pumped. That's how I was introduced to almost all my favorite horror things, by watching The Simpsons version of it first. First time I witnessed Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. The Simpsons was such a great gateway to things that you would never be allowed to see otherwise, because it's a cartoon. Let the kid watch it. It's like that in the sci-fi channel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I kind of miss the Sci-Fi Channel. I have no idea what it's like now. I know for a while they started doing like wrestling stuff, and then they got into their own programming more. You're not bouncing back. Also, this is the scene where Shelley Duvall ruined everything forever and had to go home. (laughs) Because she didn't hit her fucking mark! (laughs) So to connect a couple of ideas here, one, it's a good thing my internet went out forever, because now we got to watch this movie right when MB was ready to appreciate it, (laughs) <laughs> Two, it's more it's seasonally true. appropriate. It's I cold out there. It's cold. <laughs> I swear to God. This is something I've touched on a lot of times. But <laughs> Did you fake your internet going no, out I, to I, it was seasonally appropriate? I swear to God I did not. Uh, but to me, if, if a movie matches the environment outside, I'm more into it. Like, if it's a dark and rainy day, I want to watch a dark and rainy movie. If it's wait, wait, rainy, wait. What's a rainy movie? Noah? Uh, something like seven. <laughs> it is always raining in seven, so I'll yeah, give you seven, that. 
weirdly, that's a... I can't believe I'm saying this. I agree with Cody. Oh. But even, oh. even besides that, just the idea of, oh, well, it's snowy out. It's got to be a snowy movie. Just just the transformation. Oh, that looks comfortable. <laughs> Those giant sacks. Oh, <laughs> just, just... looks so comfortable. And he has so much food. It's like my dream. <laughs> just sacks upon sacks of corn. Yeah, I'm in heaven. Maze. Oh. I want to see the alternate version where he just lives in there, like fucking Vigo Mortensen in the road. He is eating Oreos and a giant tub. Is that peanut butter? What is that? It's sure. You should close that, dude. He also Again, that's what disgusted Grady. You're wasting the peanut butter, sir. That has to last forever. You do not mind my saying so. Again, I'm back to the Simpsons with Homer in there just eating everything in the pantry until <laughs> the ghosts drag him out. Like someone bursts in in a suit. This is how you get ants. <laughs> Quakers. I, I think I was trying to make a point before. I kind of forgot my segue to it, so I'm just going to... Seasonal movies. Seasonal movies. But one of my favorite things in movies is just... Uh, let's say you walk into a movie theater when it's... Mid-afternoon, but it's still bright out, still sunny. You sit in a movie that's something like Harry Potter that's three hours long, and you walk out, and during that time, maybe it's rained or the weather's changed, it's dark now, and it's always one of those weird things where you've been in the movie world for just a handful of hours, but it feels alien walking outside, like you've just totally changed where you're at, even though... Oh, yeah. where you've time-traveled? That's awesome. Such it was amazing walking thing. out of Rogue One, and it was pitch black and storming. It's like, oh, God, <laughs> the Empire is here. You should always leave a movie, and it's night when you walk out of it. That is the best. It's the best oh, yeah. feeling. It's very oh. weird when you go to an early day matinee. Like, I did that with Sinister One. I saw it by myself early, like, at noon, and walked out, and it was bright and sunny, and it was bullshit. It's like, I was not ready for this. Oh, morning movies are the worst. You should always end the day with a movie. Here's my here's my thought though. If you had the chance to own your own theater, what if you wouldn't it be an interesting experiment if you watched a movie at five a.m., walked out, it became day. <laughs> oh, that's I decadence. Have done that. It's not fun. Oh. <laughs> Well, you were drunk at the time. That's different. No, wait I, was, minute, I was. Wait a minute. Was, what time did you see the movie? I was working. Uh, it wasn't like I went to a movie theater. I had a movie playing in my bedroom. That's not the to, same. That's not. The, I, that's not what he was talking about. I had to get up at like two in the morning, so I popped on like ran, and I just watched that because that movie's like four fucking hours long. And by the end of it, all of a sudden, like birds are chirping, and it was a completely, you know, ugh, bright, cheery day, and I'm still doing work. It was bullshit. I hated it. It was the worst experience. See, I had the opposite experience. Whenever the first uh, Lord of the Rings extended cuts came out, I popped in Fellowship of the Ring at around, uh, I think, 12 o'clock at night and just watched the nine-hour making-of featurette (laughs) and then just walked out on the porch and drank coffee and whistled. It was beautiful. (laughs) Not my speed. Yeah, I had a weird Either. thing whenever I was about 14 where I was obsessed with being up for 24 hours at a time. It was like a weird <laughs> personal test. That sounds horrible. I've done that. It's not fun. Did you start hallucinating? Uh, not that I know of. 
Did you chop up your uh, wife and daughter into little bits? Not that I know of. Goaty, did you do that? Uh, I ate some french fries and cried. So no one killed Scatman Crothers? I I did. Did. You killed Jazz? I'm sorry, he was there. (laughs) We've lost a good friend today, but we've gained others who aren't Jazz, so it's better. Don't worry, we'll have much cooler robots in the next movie. That was us insulting the live-action Transformers <laughs> films briefly during this Shining commentary. And Michael Bay's accidentally racist comment that still makes me laugh like nine years later. <laughs> I like how Wendy was able to go to sleep. <laughs> it was very a very long day. He's safely locked away. There's probably no one else in this haunted hotel, even though she thought there might have been someone earlier. It feels like you would try to fix the snowcat. But that's just me. Or at least the radio. You think like they'd have a backup one? Or do literally anything other than sleep. With a large See, knife. I kind of turn on Shelley Duvall at a certain point in the movie. It's when she swings the baseball bat very poorly. I'm like, come on, that's terrible form. And after that, I'm just not in her corner anymore. Have you seen her arms? She was in olive oil for a reason. <laughs> it's about the wrist, man. She's got the choke too high. It's uh, terrible. <laughs> but yeah, that is actually a good point. Like, why would you risk it? Why would you risk falling asleep with a knife next to you when you know crazy Jack Torrance is in there and could possibly get out? Well, I mean, that is a heavy locker. I really can't fault the movie logic for that. Well, no, I'm just making fun of the character for no particular reason, because ghosts exist, Cody. (laughs) I will say, uh, from personal experience, I have uh, slept with someone trying to kill me with a knife beside my bed, and yeah, it's amazing what you can sleep through. Look, I, that weekend, I only killed Scatman Crothers, and you should be thankful for it. No, he was going to make us all young again, MB. <laughs> Kick, Kick the, the goddamn can. can. <laughs> so I've always wondered, since the kid didn't know he was in a horror movie, but he was standing there with a knife shouting Red Rum over and over, what kind of films do you think he thought he was in? He a was comedy called Red Rum? Mirrors! Speaking of this mirror... Oh, my I... favorite shot of oh, like pretty much the best. any horror movie. I love the way it follows the axe it goes through. You can still see what's happening, but you get the urgency of the action. God damn, I love it so much. It's no so, quick cuts. It's so violent looking. It's almost like emotion comic in a weird way. This this movie proves why quick cuts in horror should not happen most of the time. But here's what I like about that mirror shot is through all the mirror motifs throughout the movie, that's that moment where you see red rum reflected and says murder in a mirror is when the movie and the hotel itself goes batshit insane, <laughs> where you're essentially stepping through the mirror into the mirror version of the hotel, which is just hell. That is a great point, because, yeah, from this point on, it doesn't really let up. It's The slow burn's over, and now you've got the actual fire. Go, Danny, go! Slide down that salt styrofoam. Have you guys ever was that high? Have you guys ever seen uh, the behind the scenes footage? Like it's actually in the uh, documentary I was talking about earlier from Vivian Kubrick, 
of Nicholson psyching himself up for this scene. Yeah. yeah. Just going, Pop axe murder, axe murder, axe murder. Fucking killer, fucking killer. That's how you do it. Have you the same thing on The Departed? Mob boss, mob boss. Racism, racism. Cocaine. <laughs> Irish. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Face those? It's fascinating thinking about uh, the comments from Nicholson on yeah, his love of the moment where he loses control as an actor and how uh, that's used by Kubrick. And just thinking about that moment, like, I think Jack Nicholson and Kubrick were made for each other. Oh, yeah. Because no other actor on Earth was built to be abused for 11 hours at a time until he doesn't know who the hell he is anymore. <laughs> because you can say whatever. Most of the time, method acting is bullshit. But you can, like, see with Nicholson here, like, he really did have to hop around for ten minutes and say, axe murder, axe murder, to get to this level of mania. I mean, that's why he was essentially rewarded with the fact that he ad-libbed the little pig's line. And then this line coming up, the famous one, is Kubrick doesn't usually allow people to do that. I do love the attention to detail there. There's a lamp you can see. Well, not on this side, but on the other side of the door, there's a lamp next to the table. And the effect of that is just this really cool, eerie-looking underlight on Jack Nicholson's face as he cop chops through the door. Even in this shot, you can still see it. I like really that attention they still have. Yeah. Well, wasn't, uh, wasn't Jack Nicholson a uh, firefighter for years or something? I believe so. Oh, that was barely a cut. It's true. Yeah, he still has all of his is not used to pain. <laughs> <laughs> Until Mars attacks. It'd be amazing if it was like a phantasm. She cuts off his fingers and they become animals that attack her. Oh. <gasps> They're all wearing little bear suits. He bleeds that butter. <laughs> One thing I always think goes a little underappreciated in the film is the score and its use. There are so many moments where it's just dead silent and you maybe get like a little bit of a background noise. But when the score is going, you definitely know it. Like it's just high end screeching. It's a lot of, you know, jarring stuff hitting you in the face. Oh, the score is mania. Well, this movie created the idea of the modern horror movie score. Like anytime you're watching a crappy direct-to-video movie, and the score is that spidery ding 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 It's because of The Shining. <laughs> what I also love, though, is that it's a complete contrast to a lot of Kubrick's other work, which is heavily music-based, like, look at Clockwork Orange. Look at Space Odyssey. That's <laughs> opera. Yeah. Like, Clockwork Orange specifically is such... I mean, it's predicated on so much of music. Like, it's... It's a classical musical overture to the point of parody. And this is just so low-key by comparison, even though they're both, like... I would say Clockwork Orange is the closest to a... Like, in tone to this that... Of, like, any other Kubrick film. 
Oh, oh definitely. Okay. I would say that. It's so strange to think that Kubrick had 2001 A Space Odyssey in him. And this. <laughs> and Barry Lyndon. <laughs> See, we should have done commentary for Barry Lyndon. And Eyes Wide Shut. At the same time? My what God, I love is man. Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon's the movie even Kubrick doesn't like. <laughs> Barry Lyndon's the reason we got The Shining. Oh, shit, I need to do something else now, quickly. <laughs> That's his death proof. What's more shocking, though, isn't that he had those movies in his head, is that he had these movies and Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> well, well, that actually, once again, labels perfectly... And what we were saying earlier about the line between comedy and drama, Dr. Strangelove was going to be a dead serious Stanley Kubrick war drama. And then Kubrick looked at that script and was like, wait a second. If I turn it up just a couple of notches, this is a pure comedy. <laughs> Which is funny because we make the joke all the time. Of Stanley Kubrick just stone-faced, looking dead set at something. Huh. Comedy. <laughs> Even though that's not his voice, that's not how he sounded at all, that's just how we expect Stanley Kubrick to sound in our heads for some reason, because we're Warner against... Herzog. I always thought that was your Mads impression. <laughs> in real life, it would just be like, ah, comedy. God, it's weird to hear Stanley Kubrick talk like a normal his, his dude. His voice doesn't match his face. No. He sounds, he sounds like, like Kevin 20. Pollack. Yeah. God, he, the fact that he's so soft-spoken is what freaked me out, because it's like you expect him to be this howling madman. Or Werner Herzog. I like how we're all just waiting for Scatman Crothers to die. Right? It always surprises me. I never know the exact moment Jack pops out, which is dumb because I've seen the movie a hundred times. It is weird. A great chanting score pops up. It's also weird to me that this is one of the most famous horror movies ever made, but it has an incredibly low body count. There's Scatman. There's flashes to, you know, a couple of other victims from the hotel, but I don't know if they really count. And Jack Nicholson's frozen body. And that was just the cold getting him. <laughs> the real murderer. <laughs> His confusion at that maze. Danny, you fucked up. Why'd you crawl out, Danny, you dumb fuck? Why are you I going upstairs? I know you're a little boy and Shelley Duvall, but seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like a euphemism for something? It sounds like, well, we are about to see the bear, so... How's your situation? Well, there's a little boy in Shelly Duvall. Oh, God, get out of there! Get out of there, man! <laughs> ding, 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 ding! Right ding, 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 ding! No. God, the amount of times I have looked down a hallway and seen a dude in a bear costume with his bare ass showing, blowing an important businessman from the 1920s. <sighs> All the time. Ah, quick zoom. What I love is there is so much bear imagery in this movie <laughs> for no reason. I, that There's... I can't figure out. I don't know what Kubrick's trying to say. <laughs> well, it's hilarious because 
uh, one of the things we watched in preparation was a lot of uh, Roger Eggers uh, videos on this subject. Is is Roger Eggers, right? It's Eggers. I think it's Roger. It's yeah. Oh, Rob, maybe Rob Eggers. <laughs> you guys don't know. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Cody. We did do like to be fair. We did do like the research and reference for this movie months ago because yeah, someone's internet ago. went out. <laughs> and we're filling time, Cody. Jesus Christ. At least we're saying we, we can't all leave the podcast and count flags and, <laughs> and marry yourself. <laughs> but, um, listening to Mr. Anchor's videos, <laughs> uh, it's hilarious whenever he gets to the bear imagery. And I think he spends a good, like, 20 minutes on it. And his final conclusion is, I have no idea why this is in the movie. <laughs> well, at least he's honest. His characters are being related to, like, teddy bears and shit, and there's other bear stuff. There's the the deleted opening. I'm, I'm sorry, the deleted ending has fucking Ullman essentially fucking wearing a uh, a bear fur coat for some reason. Here's my theory. You know how in the book the grass animals come to life? Yeah. You think Kubrick was mocking that idea by having, oh, random animals are in this? Here's a random animal. I have the bear-blowing man. <laughs> Comedy. I spit at you, King, like I spit in the face of God. What are Herzog? What are you doing here? I stand in for Stanley Kubrick. But I mean, if I'm remembering right, wasn't there a guy in a dog costume in the book? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's just pulled well, from that. It's just kind of a confusing thing to be in either one. Yeah, in the book, like, I believe one of the, uh, like, part of the backstory for the hotels, like, there was this big decadent rich man party where everyone was dressed in fur costumes and fucking each other, and there was, like, a fire, if I remember correctly. And I just love how that he pulls from the book with no context. It's because he knew how horrifying that is. At least in the movie, the dude in the bear costume doesn't try to fuck Danny. Same. I, I, I am obsessed with that ghost. He's so chipper. <laughs> I feel like one day we're going to visit you and you're cosplaying as that dude. <laughs> Lovely party, isn't it? I'll just be bleeding from the head. <laughs> uh, that's uh, one of my favorite moments in Room 237, <laughs> where they're talking about, well, what does that dude mean? Like, his, his head is split. Maybe it's a pun on, you know, the idea of a splitting headache. It's like, no, he's just a dead dude. <laughs> <laughs> when we get the Shining prequel, they're going to explain what happened to that guy, why the elevators were filled with blood, where the bear man came from. And what Thanos will do next. It's all well, we, going to be there. We, we went into this. The elevator full of blood is the fear of menstruation. <laughs> or something. It's all just... rusty water so the MPAA can approve the trailer. <laughs> God damn, it's just... terrible walking backwards. Honestly, I just like the idea of someone independently filling an elevator full of blood, closing it in the nick of time... And just sending it to a random floor. 
I love the contrast <laughs> between the Danny shots and the Jack shots. Jack we've got the steady cam right in front of his face. The guy's running backwards. It's kind of unsteady, wobbly. The Danny shots are very in control. You know, the camera's not moving. It's just showing Danny doing his business. Oh. I love that comparison between collection and chaos. Also, I'm curious, have any of you ever seen the uh, original teaser for this movie? That's just the elevator opening up and the blood filling the screen in one continuous shot with uh, the opening theme playing. It's one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. How long did I drop out? Just a second. Okay. Oh, now you're into the commentary. <laughs> so, God, why do I feel like Atreyu is going to show up and see his true self? Just a cool question. Nobody else sees reconnecting on Rabbit, right? No. Okay, no. good. I see one on you. That's weird. Okay. Everybody's recorders are still going, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, reconnecting is gone. Yep. So I might as well talk about the deleted ending that Kubrick got rid of, like, three weeks after the movie was released. <laughs> you have to refresh my memory on that. I know I've read about it, but I've totally spaced out what it was. It. I think Kubrick may have destroyed all copies of it. Or it's in his vault somewhere. I think both. Kubrick has a lot of vaults. Like, again, they made a documentary about them. Uh, the ending takes place after Jack's froze, and it goes out to Ullman walking down a hospital. And he has a little scene with Danny, then he brings flowers to Win Wendy. And tries to explain the police found nothing and that she was imagining everything. Okay. And then he walks out. At least some some people who saw the ending say this didn't happen. Shelley Duvall says this was the full scene, and she was there, so I'm inclined to believe her. She had to film it 18 times. <laughs> but Ullman, apparently while walking out, turns to Danny and says he has something for him and throws Jack's yellow ball at him, and it bounces twice, and Danny catches it. Because apparently, according to Vol, they filmed the bouncing all day to make sure it bounced just right. <laughs> and Ullman walks off, and it's heavily implied that Ullman knew everything that happened at the hotel. And Duvall felt it was a mistake to get rid of. And no one knows exactly why Kubrick got rid of it. Eh, it doesn't sound like something that's really essential to the story. No, it, it's... I. It may explain a little bit too much because Ullman is in on it and then involved in the story. Uh, and that's where he's wearing the fucking giant fur coat to bring in the bear imagery again and shit. And I think he may like tell Wendy that she can come live with him. Keep the weird sleazy sexuality that's weirdly in the movie going. It doesn't really add very much. It's yeah. maybe a little more, a little too traditional. I feel like that would probably raise a few too many weird questions, like, does the ghosts have an agent? <laughs> like the shadow. It's like it both answers things, kinda, 
and makes things more ambiguous and weird. I'm not even sure why Shelley Duvall needs to be in the hospital. She seems fine. Yeah, like, she mostly gets out of this in pretty good shape. Like, she doesn't get kicked downstairs or cut up. It's emotional trauma. It's, yeah, emotional trauma for sure, and maybe, like, a touch of hypothermia? I don't know how warm those controllers are. Well, Jack Nicholson shouts incoherently. <laughs> that is an accurate description. Thanks, subtitles on Netflix. Fumbling. So I love whenever this is brought up, when people talk about the bear symbolism as, well, in this scene, he's... Making bear noises. Yeah, okay. Also, that doesn't explain the bear any further. Greatest cut in film history. Which is hilarious, by the way. It's it's never stops being funny. I can only think of The Simpsons. And again, do you think that he just made Nicholson stay in the snow until he froze? Yes. In the deleted ending, too, this... Uh, pull-in shot is apparently like two minutes long. It starts way, way back and goes throughout like the entire lobby. It's probably too late to start mentioning this, but I, I have noticed a couple spots in the movie where colors are very predominant. Like there's a sign back there that said the gold room. There's the very red bathroom. Uh, at the start of the movie, Omen has a book on his desk that's called the Red Book. And I have no idea if that's intentional or if it's just something that's supposed to have some sort of meaning. Kubrick was very preoccupied with color, so I would guess that that was very okay. intentional. Plus, you have, you know, Danny, uh, Danny and his, uh, his Super Mario colors that he also shares with his mother. Yeah, and the twins kind of matching uh, color-wise to Wendy and shit, so there's a lot of color coding. Also, Baphomet logo. Wow. I'm fucking old Hollywood, Nicholson. <laughs> he looks so much better with the haircut. I think it's just a tuxedo, man. Pulls everyone together. Bon, gun. Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, since you brought up the twins, uh, there is one little bit of errata I was wanting to bring up. Which is in that documentary that Vivian made, there's a moment where Kubrick brings James Mason to the set to meet Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. And he meets uh, what I believe are his two daughters. The oldest daughter has hair exactly like the twins. The youngest daughter has the exact dress. It's really weird. (laughs) And in watching that documentary, you see Nicholson and the other actors complain that Kubrick was rewriting the script every single day, so they never knew what the hell they were filming. (laughs) And the twins aren't in the book, so it's very possible the twins are a combination of James Mason's kids. Because Kubrick was on set watching them meet Jack Nicholson, and was like, a plan is forming. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. I'm just imagining Stanley Kubrick in the world of Batman Returns just approaching Catwoman. Just the pussy I've been looking for. I feel like he would look exactly the same. Stanley Kubrick was kind of a Batman villain. Or Batman. It's all... He was the Wrath. 
Let's face it. <laughs> or Spider-Man. It also is also worth pointing out that Mason's daughters look to be eight and ten, which are the ages Ullman gives to the twins, who logically should be the same age. It's really weird. That's, that's really an interesting uh, theory I've heard bandied about, that the twins are actually one person cut in half. Yeah. Which plays into the whole mirror symbology Kubrick works in the movie. What I love is we could do literally, like, we didn't even touch upon the twins. We could do six more commentaries for this movie. Oh, yeah. And never, ever retread the same topic. Well, there is the version of the movie that's backwards, laid on the movie frontwards. I still want us to do commentary for that. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about it. Because if you see clips from that, oh my god. Again, if it were any other director, you'd say it's coincidence. But no, Stanley Kubrick would make a film that was symmetrical. Well, Kubrick was obsessed with symmetry. I could I could believe it, but man, the practicality of it making that happen just seems like too much. Well, it just makes you wonder in all those scenes where he's telling somebody to pick up a phone 97 times. Like, is he behind the camera with a little television watching the dailies from a month earlier, trying to get it to match up just right? Uh, it's like, in in the movie, there's scenes that happen like, here's a shine, here's a sheen, uh, scene of, uh, like, hollering. Or, or whatever, shining like 27 minutes in from the opening of the movie. Here's a shining scene 27 minutes from the ending of the movie. Why is that symmetrical? Like, that's why the movie weirdly <laughs> lines up in that way. Maybe, well, could, maybe he was just OCD. <laughs> well, Kubrick used to measure all of the newspaper ads that he would pay for to make sure that they were exactly within parameters. So, yeah, he was that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I like how that's the note we're ending on. <laughs> he was that kind of guy. Was he was that kind of guy. <laughs> he was a maze of a man. <laughs> he was amazing. <laughs> I was the Batman villain now. he was. The maze. <laughs> the maze. Hey, we gave amazing content, Cody. We don't know where you were. You pointed out flags and brought John Carpenter quotes. And I quit. made a fun joke about a red bathroom, all right? <laughs> it Box was office fun. Home, a fun joke about a red bathroom. <laughs> and speaking of box office pulp. Hey, if you like, someone's it, taking the reins. I because you're not ending the show. <laughs> <laughs> if you like this commentary, I pray that you did because we had zero confidence of it going in. You can listen to more of our commentaries or our regular episodes or anything else at boxofficepulp.blogspot.com, where you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash boxofficepulppodcast. And, of course, our brand new Twitter at boxofficepulp. Follow along with us and find all the links you need for this very show. And talk shit about Frank Grillo. Yeah, tweet Cody. Piss him off. (laughs) 
Cody I will reply to you, by I, the way. Cody I, has I, nothing else going on. He will reply to you. I, I would like to reply to you, but I'm also very confused and frightened and overwhelmed by Twitter, so I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> we so all, see, all, tweet him. <laughs> t- t- like, tell Cody you want certain episodes to happen, and Cody will become so scared of pissing you off that we'll have to record those episodes, even if they're like Weekend at Bernie's 2. Which I will do an episode on Weekend at Bernie's too. That movie's amazing. Well, Mike, you just want to do Weekend at Bernie's too. That was a long way of you saying we should do Weekend at Bernie's too. Yeah, the entire reason we're doing a commentary for The Shining was for me to do this exact ending. Bring up Weekend at Bernie's too, then boom, Weekend at Bernie's two episode, three hours long. You could just ask, man. You don't. This is a lot of rigmarole. What we're saying is, please cyber bully Cody. (laughs) Please subscribe. Rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, <laughs> whatever your preferred listening method is, and Cyberbully Cody at Fox Remember, Office Pulp on Twitter. I read all of your comments. I'm just too terrified to respond. <laughs> Cody is shaking at all times. Well, I can't top that. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. But, Mike, you've always been the host of Box Office Pulp. No. No! So the scat man. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. That was a shockingly good commentary. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really like that. I just like the fact that we were actually all on point and. Despite the fears going into it, we were, we managed to overcome them. I was blindsided by Mike's very sophisticated philosophy of horror talk. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, I was blindsided by Mike's inciting cyberbullying against (laughs) Mike. No. Whatever gets us listeners. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, please, please. Put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.